Well, good morning, friends and supporters of Go Ye Harvest Ministry. Good morning to all those who are here uh, at the office with us. I am Daniel Morgan of Go Ye Harvest Outreach Ministry, and I want to welcome you to our weekly Explore Bible Basics. Before we get into our session, if you're watching this by Instagram or on our website at GoYeHarvestOutreach.com, I want to encourage you to also look at our previous sessions. We are currently going through the Gospel of John in chapter 2. Previously, we also recorded the first chapter of the Gospel of John, as well as recordings of who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, and who is God. So once again, welcome. The first chapter of the Gospel of John, as well as recordings of who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit, and who is God. So once again, welcome. If you have your Bibles, we are in chapter 2. week before last, when we were last here, uh, we did part 1, which dealt with the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And just as a, as a uh, corner, we prayed before we begin our sessions. And so we've already prayed uh, that the Lord will be done in this session and the things that need to be said will be said. So with our prayer already been, having been done, we will go into our study session for today. Just as a reminder, in our last session, we talked in very explicit details about the first miracle that Jesus performed. If you recall, Jesus was attending a wedding ceremony in Canaan, and his mother asked him to provide wine, literally, because they were out of wine, and she asked Jesus to do something. And Jesus initially had said his hour had not come, but after his mother directed the servants to do what he asked, Jesus did perform the miracle. And as you recall, the miracle that he performed was turned about, about 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. So that was the review of part one of chapter two, Jesus turning water into wine. So we pick up this morning in verse 13, John chapter two, verse 13, and I'm going to, to read that. And this, of course, is part two of chapter two, dealing with Jesus cleansing the temple. And it reads, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover was an annual Jewish feast, and it was a memorial that the Jews held to remind them of the time when God passed over the houses of all the Israelites, sparing the firstborn, the firstborn son of all the Israelites because they put the blood on the lamppost in front of their homes. And when the death angel passed over Egypt, the death angel saw, according to scripture, the blood and passed over those homes. But it was not so good for the Egyptians because after many warnings and many requests, Pharaoh had refused to allow the people of God to leave. So God brought the final by killing 
taking the firstborn son of all the Egyptians, beginning with Pharaoh. And as you know, prior to going down into uh, Canaan, Jesus had been baptizing. Now, what I want to point out as we go through this review of the Gospel of John, particularly here in chapter 2, as we talk about what Jesus did, his cleansing the temple, Jesus did not begin his ministry by quietly preaching a message of sweetness and everybody, let's just get along and everything is hunkadory. Jesus began his ministry by creating a major confrontation against the perverseness in the temple. He came against the rulers and the Pharisees of the day. And sometimes that's the way we have to be, and we'll get into that a bit more. Uh, if I could get one of you to read verses 14 through 17, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remember that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Wow, verses 14 through 17. As I often say, there's a lot to be unpacked in the book of John. So let's start unpacking. In verses 14 through 17, people were selling animals and changing money in the temple. And then Jesus, having a zeal for the house of God, his father's house, drove them out saying they should not make his father's house a house of merchandise. So in the temple, Jesus found people exchanging money. They were selling ox. They were selling sheep and doves. And all these animals were commonly used to make sacrifice. You know, this is not unusual because Jews were obligated to pay a tax for the care of the temple. They were required to pay a half a shekel. You can go to Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 15. This is the ransom. And this reads, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, when you number them, that there may, that there may be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the, of the sanctuary. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone, including among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more than the poor, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonements for yourselves. Now, we don't know what a half a shekel may have been in terms of money back in that day, but according to Rabbi Eliezer Posner, uh, who is a noted Jewish rabbi, and in our day, a half a shekel of civil, and that's what they were using, would be about $5. So that amount of money may not be much for the rich, but for the poor, that could have been a lot of money. Consider what Jesus said 
when they came out of the temple and the rich man put his money into the offering plate. And then a poor woman came and put the equivalent of a penny into the offering plate. And Jesus asked his disciple, well, who gave more? Naturally, when we see someone giving thousands or hundreds or whatever amount they give that may be significant, we think they were given a lot. But Jesus said this woman who gave one penny had given more than all of those rich people because she gave out of what she didn't have, out of her poorness. They gave out of their abundance. If you have an abundance and you give what may seem like a lot, it may be pennies to you. Have you really, really given Jesus your best? But that's not our topic. Our topic here is they were exchanging and selling oxen, sheep, and other animals for sacrifice. Now, why were they exchanging money? Well, in that day, the entire area of Judea, Jerusalem, and all that was under Roman rule. And being under, under Roman rule, the common money would have been the Roman money. But the law required that the offering be given in Jewish money. So the exchangers had to exchange the Roman money that they would have had into the shekel to be used for the offering. So get this now. They are doing what they're required to do. They're required to make the offering. And if they don't have the right money, they have to exchange it to comply with God's word. In the temple, they were exchanging in the temple. Now, in the temple here does not mean the holy or the most holy. Anyone that went into the holy or the most holy, you were going to die. You were going to be put to death. Remember back when uh, God had Moses who first construct the tabernacle, God himself would strike people dead. By this time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very judicious and adhering to the law. So if you went into either of these locations, you were going to die. It was that simple. Unless you were the priest or the high priest on duty to go and perform duties required by the law. And remember, all those folk came from the tribe of Levi. So they're doing what they're required to do. And that's not the point, that they were paying the tax or that they were changing money. That's not the problem. But you see, the problem is where they were doing it. While they may not have been in the place, in the holy or the most holy places, they were still in the temple. Now, it is believed that the temple had several porches. So if you can imagine around our Supreme Court or other buildings that we have, we have porches around those buildings, and then you can go through the doors into the actual buildings. The problem here is they were on the temple grounds. Now, when Jesus put together the cord, the scripture says he put this cord together and he drove them out. Now, when Jesus drove them out, we don't know whether or not Jesus actually struck the people or he actually struck the animal. There are many instances where uh, when people drive sheep or if you want to drive people, you can simply crack the whip above their head. Nevertheless, it was the same effect and that Jesus drove them all out. And I have no doubt if they had not moved, they would have probably been struck with Jesus' cord that he put together. Interestingly, we're also told in Matthew 21, verse 12, and Mark chapter 11, verse 15, that the money changers came back, and in those verses, Jesus had to do the same thing. He drove them out again. Interestingly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other rulers must have approved of this practice because they were there and they were allowed to come back. 
Jesus was opposing not just the men who were possibly making financial profit because there could have been people who were overcharging, but also the people in charge of the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves. Jesus clearly was demonstrating he is a man of courage. And we must be men and women of courage today as disciples of Christ. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 to 17. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry their, wear, carry their wares through the temple. Then he taught the people saying, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then consider what is said over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Even then I will bring my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, on my altar. But my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But they have made it a den of thieves. So when Jesus had cleansed the temple, his disciples remembered the scriptures that said this was an indication for the zeal of God's house. As is said in Psalm 69 verse 9, because of your zeal, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus was fulfilling scripture. He had a zeal for the house of his father God. You know, what Jesus did may have not been direct worship, but it pertains indirectly to worship. And I want to speak briefly to this because sometimes there are things that we may do that may not be expressly said in scripture, but may be prohibited by scripture because of an indirect inferment. So let's walk through this. The animals were offered for sacrifice and the change was made so people could pay the temple tax, as I said, to do sacrifice. God himself had commanded the Israelites to do this sacrifice and to pay the tax. So what were the problems? It is believed that some of the men may have been corrupt and overcharged the people. Some may have taken advantage of the people who needed to make sacrifice but to do an exchange. But God's worship requirement was being used as a means for people to line up pockets for profit, potentially. And then the second reason for Jesus' objection is that even if this fee that was being charged by the money changer had been fair and just, the business of selling doves and making change should still not have been conducted in the temple. And that was Jesus' point. It should have been done somewhere else because Jesus said, you are making my house a house of merchandise. So there's a couple of lessons to be taken from these scriptures. And let's look at a couple of these lessons. Brothers and sisters and friends, I want you to know that these scriptures speak volumes to us. We must stand firmly on the word of God and we must resist the culture of our day that continually tells us right is wrong and wrong is right, that goes against the word of God. When we know what scripture tells us, we must hold fast and we can't deviate from what scripture tells us. Consider Isaiah, Isaiah 
chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. Here, here's what Isaiah tells us. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And then look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Now, here's what I think all Christians probably know. We don't know. We need to know it. This was foretold to us in Scripture. And we are now living it more so than ever. And it reads, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What are we talking about here? We're talking about now because of the perversion of our society and that we're no longer teaching and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ without deviation. People have now gotten away from wanting to hear the exact truth of God. And because people don't want to have the exact truth of God and our churches want members, unfortunately, in many circumstances, not all, but in many circumstances, we're no longer teaching the unadulterated gospel according to the Bible. And we're saying that God is understanding and permissible of so many things and accepting the statement that God made me this way. If he hadn't made me this way, I wouldn't be this way. Or we're saying, you know what, I have this relationship with God and, you know, he'll work it out and we'll work it out. No, the scripture is clear about what the ways of God are. Consider Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are all or we all were sinners. But those of us that now know the Lord Jesus Christ and have fallen after him and have uh, purged ourselves or will for sin, we need to remember that we too at one time were doing these things, whether it was sexual immorality or drunkenness or anything else. We too were in sin, but thanks be to God and his son, Jesus. We were saved. We were justified. We were made whole because of Jesus. As such, we have an obligation to be just as Jesus was. We must resist false teachings that we know are contrary to what scripture clearly teaches us. That's the first lesson to take from those scriptures we just read, 13 through 17. The second one, God does not have to expressly say something for it to be wrong. We know of no Old Testament passage that expressly forbid the selling or making change in the temple area, though unfair practices were often condemned in scripture. But God said what the temple was for, and these activities apparently were not included. Otherwise, Jesus would not have driven them off the temple grounds. Likewise, 
we are wrong if we simply do things differently from what God has said in ways that are not authorized or not included in God's commands to us. We must have biblical authorities, brothers and sisters, for what we do, and we must not change what God has said to fit our own ideas of what we desire. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 5 through 13. I'm going to read this. But you teach that if people have something they could use to help their mother or their father, but say this belongs to God, they do not need the they do not need to honor their father. In this way, you disregard God's command in order to follow your own teaching. You hypocrites. How right Isaiah was when he prophesied about you. These people say, God, honor me with their words, but their heart is really far away from me. It is no use for them to worship me because they teach human rules as though these were my laws. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into your mouth that make you ritually unclean, rather what comes out of you that make you unclean. Then the disciples said to Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees had their feeling hurt by what you said? But you know what? <clears throat> Jesus continued that statement, that, that, that discussion by saying, Every plant which my Father in heaven did not plant will be pulled up. Now consider this, Jesus did not or concern himself with people's feelings, people being hurt when the truth needed to be told, and neither should we. But because of the political correctness of our day and the feeling of hurting someone feeling with the truth, we make false statements, we make has statements, or we just simply keep quiet. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, we must speak biblical truth as we know it in all situations and, in, and at all times, whether or not it is nice or politically correct. And then third, the third lesson. Continuing the church. That's God's temple today. Not the building, but the people, and particularly the local congregation considered 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It reads, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defies the temple of God, God will destroy that person. We're talking about sin here. Unforgiven, unrepentant sin. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And then Peter tells us over in 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. If also, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, God sanctified the church, his people, for spiritual purposes, to worship him and to teach his word. And then lastly, I want to share with you 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And this is Paul speaking. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, as you may know, we're using a commentary by Dr. Pratt. And I agree with Dr. Pratt when he says God's people today need to have the same zeal for the purity of God's spiritual temple, the church 
that Jesus had for the temple in Jerusalem. We should let our churches focus on its lofty purpose of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, worshiping God and saving souls. But too often, in many cases, our churches have gone beyond this into the secular sphere and many other areas where God has not necessarily called the church. As individuals, certainly we may do many things, but as the church of the living God, it is my belief, and I agree with Dr. Pratt, that the church would do well to focus on those things God has called it to do according to Scripture. And let me close that out by saying this. This is from Proverbs Proverbs 14, 12. Remember, brothers and sisters, and I have to often remind myself of this, because we're all human, and without the Holy Spirit, we're prone to do this over and over and over again. But Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And what we mean here is, we may think something seems right, and we may be going down that road or doing right, but the Bible tells us, it leads to death. And that means, brothers and sisters, that the sin that we are doing, in this case, leads to death. And if we know that it leads to death, we know that it is sin because sin leads to death. So because it seems right does not mean that it is right. It could there will be sin. We should, when we're in those situations where we're not sure about something, I always say, let's go to the word of God because it is the authority for everything that we do. And the other thing, in addition to that, we should pray. Pray because God, through his Holy Spirit, will build to us whatever it is we need to know. And then consider this, and I have to also remind myself of this all the time, because oftentimes Daniel wants to think it is right and I should do something. I have to wait. And I know if many people like me, waiting is the most difficult thing that we do. I'm a military man of 24 years an officer in the army, and then I spent another 14 years working for the federal government as an inspector general. And one thing I don't like doing is being impatient and waiting on nothing. When it seems like waiting on nothing, I like to get it done. But oftentimes, especially when it comes to the things of God, we have to do what? Be still and wait on the Lord. So Isaiah 55 tells us, 55, eight, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Brothers and sisters, oh, how Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, humbles me. When I think about we as human beings are so far above an ant. You think about an ant colony. An ant colony lives as a community. And those ants do all these things, and they are totally, totally unaware of our existence as humans. If we are so far above the ant colony, imagine how much further above us our God has to be. It is something we don't actually spend a lot of time thinking on and dwelling on, but we, we have to, at, at times, just consider just how great this God of Isaiah is, he who can just speak things into being. By his word, everything was made that is made. Verse 18, John 2.18, would you read that for me? John 2.18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, again, I'm talking about Daniel here. 
the more that I consider the things that I know and believe that God has spoken to me through his Holy Spirit, the more and more sometimes I'm like, Lord, do you really want me to do this? Should I be putting myself out on a limb like this? Can you give me a sign? Oh, he and I talk all the time, every night if I can, and mornings too. And I'm constantly saying, Lord, I know what your word says. <laughs> I've been familiar with your word all my life. And I know that I don't need to be asking for a sign, just trust and believe. Lord, I know that faith, I know what faith is. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I understand all that, Lord, but I need a sign. You want me to walk out on this limb proclaiming these things that you have said? But he's already answered my prayer and told me what he's wanting to do. And so I'm waiting on that. In your life, before we go into this, I just want to encourage you. If God has told you something, if God has directed you to do something, and you know it's from the Spirit of God, don't be like I was. 40 years in waiting before I picked up my own mantle and truly follow him. Though I have known him all my life, I spent 40 years saying, Lord, be patient with me. And he was. And finally he said, how much longer do I have to be patient with you? It's been 40 years now. So don't be like me if you're younger. If you're older and you've been waiting, stop waiting. Get on your knees and seek God. Seek him today and ask him, what is it you will help me to do? And when he tells you, and he will tell you if you're sincere. And when he tells you, do it. It may not be what you want. Oftentimes, he does not answer our prayers in the manner that we're seeking because this seems right to us, but God has another plan for us. He's the God that who knows things at the from the beginning what the end is going to be. So I, I just stopped to say that to just share with you if you're watching this. If God has told you to do something, do it. Even if you don't understand it, do it. And I promise you, according to his word, he will see you through it because he will never ask us to do something that he has not or will not equipped us to do. And provide all that we need to do it. Okay. So the Jews asked Jesus to show a sign to justify what he had done. What had he done? Well, he had chased them all out of the temple. And they want to know, hey, why are you doing this? By what authority? What, what authority are you doing this? And the authority that you're doing this will be rested upon a sign. Give us a sign. No doubt the Jews were surprised or even angered by Jesus' action. They asked him for a sign to prove he had the authority to do what he did. The, re the request was, in effect, a, re a question regarding his authority or his right to do as he had just done. But this was a proper purpose of science, people. The purpose of science was to validate the teachings or actions of a man as being from God. Let me share this with you. John. Second John. Chapter 3. Verse 2. You know it well. You may not know it well by a scripture designation, but you knew it well. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, went to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that no one does the thing you are doing except that he be from God. The Jews were accustomed to miracles. The prophets that went before Jesus and went before John the Baptist all performed miraculous signs and deeds. So the Jews were accustomed to people who claimed the authority from God to perform miraculous deeds, beginning all the way back with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. 
God performed and brought forth his son Isaac. Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, the 12 tribes, and then the entire history of the Israelites. Signs continually following the prophets, the men of old in the Old Testament. So it was not necessarily improper to ask for a sign. Asking for authority for a man's action sometimes is a good thing. As demonstrated here and on other occasions, Jesus, however, knew that these people did not really respect divine authority. And they certainly did not recognize or respect divine authority being in Jesus. In fact, had the Jews been more concerned about having proper authority, that is, Jesus having proper authority, they would have never allowed the practices in the temple to begin with. As his ministry proceeded, Jesus often did numerous signs to prove he was from God. But in this case, instead of accepting the evidence and believing in him, they became more and more against Jesus. But in this case, Jesus had already explained his authority to them when he quoted scripture regarding the temple. It should be a house of prayer. That's the authority right there. The temple should be a house of prayer. But they had turned the temple into a market, a den of thieves. Scripture constitutes God's authority. With scripture, if we believe God does not necessarily have to perform another miracle, he does not have to perform or do anything miraculous. There are denominations that believed that with the passing of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, and all of those of the first church, the Holy Spirit is not present in our lives. Additionally, scripture does not teach that God has removed signs from the presence of his people. Regarding scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. While signs and miracles are no longer necessary, God still does them. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, which says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, that is, in this book of John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is to Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in Jesus. While signs were not necessarily needed, Jesus still gave signs anyway, as shown in this text, so that people may believe. And it's the same with us today. Okay, let's move on to verses 19 through 21. If you have chapter 2, if we'll read uh, verses 19 through 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was his temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Okay, so let's unpack this. The sign Jesus offered was not the one that would happen immediately. Instead, he predicted a future sign. They would destroy the temple in three days, and he would raise it up again. 
the Jews became angry and frustrated because they thought that Jesus was talking about the temple. It had taken Herod 46 years, and they were still doing improvements on this beautiful temple. Yet, you're going to say that you're going to raise this thing up in three days? But Jesus was speaking spiritually, and they couldn't understand this spiritual talk that he was teaching them. He was talking about his body, the resurrection. And you know, of all the signs that were ever presented to us in Scripture, the resurrection is the greatest sign that points to Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being who he said he was. It is because of Jesus' resurrection that we have the gospel. And this gospel is presented to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. And this is the, the, the basis of everything that we believe in, all of our hope, all of our faith, is this gospel. And what is it? And Paul tells us, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I received. Here is the crux of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also. That's Paul teaching. Paul summarizes the entire gospel, the birth the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, upon which all of our hope lies. It is ironic that because of the Jews' unbelief and refusal to accept Christ, they killed him. They crucified him. Isn't it ironic that they killed Jesus' body, but God raised him from the dead, and Jesus all predicted that the temple be destroyed, and then in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple and raised it over so not a stone was left standing. Ironic. People, we have to be careful in our lives and our walk, the things that we may do against fellow believers or others, intentionally or unintentionally, that God will cause things to come back on, on, on us. Remember, uh, the word tells us that the harm that people for evil, God causes for good. You know, and that's exactly what uh, Joseph you know, told his brothers. The harm that you meant to cause to me, God turned into good to save all of our lives. Okay, verse uh, 22. We're going to see if we can't wrap this up in uh, this cha uh, chapter uh, 2 of John. So verse 22, if someone has that. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Hmm. After his resurrection, Jesus' disciples remember his statements and believe. But also remember too now, Jesus told his disciples that when the Holy Spirit come upon them, 
the Holy Spirit will bring all things back to their remembrance. So through the Holy Spirit, the disciples were able to remember in excruciating details. And that's how we get much of the gospel. The excruciating details in which the disciples were able to remember the things that Jesus said. Because until this moment, the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying about destroying the temple and raising it back up in three days. But you know, this produces faith. When God tells us something, or when God foretells something, God says, I'm the God who determines things that are not before they are. Those saying they're not even yet. I know what they're going to be. I know the end result. This produces faith. And Jesus predicted not only his own death and resurrection, but the destruction of the temple also. Consider over in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 23, where it says, show the things that are to come hereafter. This is God speaking through Isaiah to the false gods. He's telling the false gods, show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. That's lowercase g. Yes, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and see it all together. And here's bringing it home, Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to card images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you forth of them. It is amazing that our Lord Jesus arose. It is more amazing and incredible that he claimed it, he predicted it, and it came to pass. Brothers and sisters, we need to use this kind of evidence as we share the gospel with unbelievers and to help strengthen believers. The passage also says that they believe in scripture. We begin to know the scripture. We share the word of God with people so that they may believe and that their faith may be encouraged. Verse 23. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Okay. Just to uh, reemphasize what I said, uh, the scripture, or what the scripture says, uh, Jesus performed many miracles and because of these miracles, many people believed in him. And uh, for us today, though we have all the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, it is because of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ. The miracles that he's still performing in our lives that helps us in our walk to help us grow in our faith. Verse 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Okay. So Jesus, being deity, being one in the Godhead, God the Son, and we talked about this uh, in very uh, detailed ways in our Bible study session on who is Jesus, and I would encourage you to go and look at that when you have time. 
But Jesus, being the Son of God, being deity, knows our hearts. Something that only deity, only God can do. Know our hearts, know our thoughts. Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew the hearts, the thoughts of men. He could tell the thoughts, he could tell the intent and the character of a person without that person having ever said anything about themselves. He knows. The ability to know the hearts of men is a power uniquely belonging to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 1 Kings 8.39 Man cannot know these things. 1 Corinthians 2.11 Yet Jesus often demonstrated this ability of knowing the character and the hearts and minds of people. Several, verse, several verses that speak to this is John chapter 1 verse 42 Chapter 4, verse 29. Chapter 21, verse 17. This is the greatest sign. Jesus' resurrection and is predicting his resurrection before it even happened. And in the closing, Jesus knows all of our hearts, all of our intents, all of our desires, and we can't mislead him. We can mislead others. We can mislead ourselves. But he knows us through and through and if we're faithful to him we're truly honest with him and he will see us through any questions all right i want to thank those here in the office for uh, coming out today to be a part of the bible study and if you're watching by uh, social media I want to thank you for watching as well. I encourage you to also watch other recordings. So we'll close with a word of prayer. So Father God, we just thank you once again for your love, your grace, and your mercies. We thank you for all your wonderful benefits. Father God, we thank you for your people. We thank you for those who are here today as well as those who will watch this teaching by social media. We pray, Father God, for our families, our friends, our loved ones. We pray for this ministry. We ask that you would be with us for the remainder of this week. We ask that we will allow you to lead us, direct us in the way that we should go. We pray, Father God, that as we study your word, you would speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the wonderful, master's name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.